This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 108, Learning. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Every day is a learning experience, or at least it should be. When we position ourselves to learn, we grow. When we don't, we stagnate. And when the subject is our walk with Christ, that can be tragic. This week we will discuss Jesus' frustrations with his own apostles, the simple answer to the JFK assassination, some suggestions for carrying on conversations via social media, and the excellent game I almost quit on before I even started playing. Let's start with what I've been preaching. I'm going to get to the tree men in Mark 8.24 in a few moments, but first let's deal with a little bit of context, which is interesting because the Gospel of Mark has the reputation of not really being very concerned with context. It's really just kind of telling one story and moving on to the next. But I see a very definite train of thought in Mark chapter 8, really going even back further than that. Chapter 8 begins with the feeding of the 4,000, and a proper understanding of the feeding of the 4,000 requires an understanding of the feeding of the 5,000, really, which is earlier in Mark, Mark chapter 6, the only miracle of Jesus during his ministry that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. He feeds 5,000 people with just a handful of food, and then sometime later, as Mark chapter 8 begins, he feeds 4,000 men with another small handful of food, it would seem at some point that Jesus is going to stop taking his disciples by surprise. Outsiders, those who are uninitiated, we understand that they are continually astonished at the power of Jesus. But you would think the disciples eventually would have seen enough to where nothing surprises them. But that apparently is not the case. They are surprised. And then immediately after the feeding of the 4,000, starting in verse number 11, there's an interesting little small story stuck in there that the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, that's an interesting request in the context of feeding 4,000 people with a small amount of food. You would think that would be about as big a sign as you would expect. The signs that Jesus did do from time to time didn't seem to be impressive enough for these people. And this is a frustrating thing for Jesus. He says in verse number 12, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. An indication on Jesus' part here, he has no intention of continually proving himself to people who are determined not to believe. But that being the case, you would like to think that the disciples would be able to move past this. And that is the next thing that comes up in conversation. In verse number 14, the text says, After they had gotten in the boat, the disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. I oftentimes half joke that when you see the apostles talking amongst themselves, it's always about one of two things. They're either talking about who is going to be the greatest or what are they going to eat. And I further comment, again, half-jokingly, that maybe the apostles are pretty similar to disciples even today. The disciples are so distracted by their carnal concerns, and their particular carnal concern in this place is, ironically, not having enough food. What exactly does the leaven of the Pharisees have to do with physical food? It's really kind of difficult to connect those two dots. But the disciples were able to because they were obsessed about physical things. And again, given that they had just witnessed Jesus' power to feed people with virtually no food at all, you would think that they would consider themselves to be safe in his hands in these circumstances. 
Surely the one thing they would never have to worry about is not having enough to eat, and yet that's where their mind went over and over again. There is a difference between the attitude of the enemies of Christ who refuse to see and the attitude of the disciples who presumably want to see but are having trouble with it. The more leaven that we swallow, the more we give credence to that, the further we're going to drift away from Jesus. And Jesus is trying to encourage his disciples not to pay attention to that. And if we can bypass these carnal concerns, if we can look past the idea of whether Jesus is going to feed us enough today, then maybe we will be open to the spiritual instruction that he is trying to give to us along the way. This is the context in which we find the conversation with the blind man at Bethsaida in verse number 22. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out to the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. This is the only miracle that Jesus does. This is the only sign that he gives that is done in stages. Jesus again lays his hands on this man, and the second time he has clear vision. Here he has fuzzy vision. And I can't help thinking that is done on purpose. The man is able to see people, but they look kind of like trees. Well, what people is he looking at? He's left the city. He has departed from the masses here deliberately. The only people that would be around in this situation are his disciples. It seems like this is Jesus' way of getting them to realize how tree-like they are. They are in the presence of opportunity after opportunity to learn, and yet they're like trees walking around. They are as intelligent, they are as insightful as a bunch of trees. We need to be better than that. We need to have clearer vision than that. We walk by faith, not by sight, the text says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. But the stronger our faith gets, the stronger our vision gets. We are able to see our way through this world with limited access to facts, with limited access to what the future is going to hold for us. We build our connection to Jesus. We build our faith by devoting ourselves to the Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. If we are to walk by faith instead of by sight, then we need to develop that faith. We need to strengthen that faith. And as we strengthen our faith, our vision gets better. We are able to see our way clear to conduct ourselves in this world in a reasonable way, in a profitable way, in a way that glorifies Him more effectively. We open the eyes of our heart to take Jesus in, to properly assess who he is, to properly assess who we are, and hopefully be in position to be his disciples in an effective way, in a profitable way, so that people will be able to look to us and see Jesus' disciples. And to do that, we need to be able to see clearly. Better than trees, anyway. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. In his best-selling book, Case Closed, Gerald Posner makes a compelling and, I believe, a definitive case that President John F. Kennedy was killed in the streets of Dallas, Texas on November 22, 1963, as a result of three bullets being fired out of a Manlicker Carcano rifle from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository by Lee Harvey Oswald. It is ironic, as Posner points out, that the official position has become not only the minority position, but the controversial position. 
with regard to this. Virtually everybody these days has their own idea of what conspiracy was behind the assassination, whether it was the Cubans or the CIA or President Johnson or the mafia, whoever it is. There's got to be some other explanation than the most anti-communist president we had ever had in the White House was killed by a communist. And so we have gone on all kinds of wild goose chases and speculations and whatnot. And there's no question, Posner points this out also, that the investigation was botched. There were problems with gathering testimony, preserving testimony, people covering for themselves in the FBI and the Warren Commission and all that. There was really very little doubt that the investigation was largely set up to accomplish the end that it did accomplish. That being said, it doesn't mean it's not the truth. And he makes the case that it absolutely was the truth. I would encourage you to read the book if you are interested in Kennedy assassination mythology and such and come to your own conclusions. It really, it's more than half a century in the past now. It really doesn't make any difference. But I bring it up in this context because there is a very strong tendency among people in general, especially people who get emotionally involved, people who get charged up, to see what they want to see, to refuse to learn a better way, a more accurate way, because they are so caught up in what they already believe. Conspiracy theorists tend to see conspiracies. That doesn't mean they're not there, but it also doesn't mean that they are there. And sometimes what we need to do is examine things more closely. Naaman is a great example of this. In 2 Kings chapter 5, and verse number 11, all preachers have their Behold I Thought sermon, probably. I certainly have mine. Naaman has this idea of what the prophet is going to do because he's dealt with prophets in the past. He's dealt with priests in the past. He wants to be healed of his leprosy, and he imagines that the prophet's going to come out and do this great thing and wave his hand over the leprous spot, and he was going to be healed. And, and instead, he sends a servant out. He won't even dignify him with a personal visit. Sends a servant out to tell him to go dip seven times in the Jordan River. I could have stayed home and dipped in a river. Why in the world would I do something like that? And his servant talks a little bit of sense into him and says, why wouldn't you do something like that? If it's really that easy, why not go ahead and do what the prophet said? Maybe the truth is simpler than you realize. And such is the case with so many things. If we can get past our preconceptions with regard to biblical doctrine, with regard to morality, with regard to marriage, or whatever the issue happens to be, if we believe that the Bible is accurate, if we believe that the Bible is telling us God's truth, then we are capable of filtering out all of our preconceived notions and simply listening to what God has to say on this subject or any subject and finding the truth and coming to a belief in the truth. The problem is, of course, we have a great deal of difficulty separating ourselves from our past, from our preconceived notions, from the other agendas that we have in this life. We all have other things we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to build a career. We're trying to have fun. We're trying to find somebody to marry or whatever it happens to be. We all have these plans that don't seem on the surface, perhaps, to have anything to do with our walk with Christ. And so we pursue our plans and we pursue Christ. And then we find out one day that they do intersect, that there is a problem, and we have a choice to make. Are we going to be able to do the things of God when it becomes challenging to do so? John points out this dilemma with some of the contemporaries of Jesus. In John chapter 12, and verse 42 and 43, the text says that many of those ones there were willing to believe in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. 
I like human praise as much as the next person. There's no question that that is a goal. Exactly how noble it is depends on the context probably. But it's not necessarily a problem. It becomes a problem when it interferes with more important things, with actually important things. And surely the praise of God is the most important thing of all. Would we rather listen to God's praise or would we rather listen to man's praise? That's the question. It can come to a point in our dealings with human teachers where we are confronted with lies, and they may be very effective. The text talks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, that there are going to be some who are going to buy into the teachings of this antichrist, this one who is saying these loud and boisterous things. He's going to be very convincing. They're going to listen to a lie, and they're going to believe the lie. You have the opportunity to listen to that if you want to. God is not giving you his gospel in a vacuum. There are going to be competing gospels. Not all of them are going to be the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That's only the gospel that we find in the New Testament. But you could believe another gospel and believe that it's just as good. There are certainly going to be many, many people who are trying to tell you that. Some of them resemble the true gospel. Some of them do not. Either way, you'll have your options. You'll be able to listen to lie if you want to. But if you truly seek the truth, if you truly value what God has to say on this subject, you'll be able to find that. If you can focus on the important things, if you can listen to all of the facts, Peter and John and the rest of the apostles confront these people there in Jerusalem in the early days. Peter's words in Acts chapter 3, verse 17, telling the people there that they acted in ignorance when they crucified Jesus. Clearly, they wouldn't have deliberately crucified the Messiah, but they did it anyway. They were not aware of the facts behind the situation, and so they acted poorly. If we can learn the salient facts, if we can inform ourselves before entering into a life-altering decision, we have a much better chance of making a good decision in those positions. Do not allow yourself to live in ignorance. Do not allow yourself to fall victim to false teaching. However much the wolf may look like a sheep, he's not a sheep. Find the truth. Be determined to find the truth. Don't allow your baggage, don't allow your neighbors, don't allow your preconceived notions interfere with the quest for the one bit of truth that is absolutely necessary, the one that's going to get you to heaven eventually after this life is over. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Nobody's learning anything. If you have spent much time around me over the last two or three years, especially during conversations regarding social media, you've heard me say that, I'm sure. That is constantly on my tongue, seems like. It is an extraordinary level of frustration for me because so many people are saying so many things and the bar is simply not being raised with regard to the common level of knowledge. And the reason that's happening is people don't want to learn. They want to show off. They want to join. They want to be heard. But they are not necessarily interested in changing. In fact, they're generally dogmatically opposed to changing. And that's what learning is. Learning is acknowledging that you do not have the answers and that somebody else does or in the case of the Bible, that something else does. Are we willing to listen? Are we willing to learn? Far too often the answer is no. And if you don't know what I'm talking about with regard to social media, then read a few comment threads. Read a post on Facebook or YouTube or whatever that has more than 30 comments. The longer the comment thread gets, the more 
argumentative things get, the more dogmatic, the more entrenched people get in their own opinions. Very rarely will you see somebody post something, I hadn't thought of it that way. You're right, and I've been wrong all these years. Thank you for the interesting bit of knowledge there. People just don't tend to go that way, especially when the topic is something that is incendiary, something that's controversial, something that spawns very strong opinions on both sides. And my general approach has been, over the last few years, just not get involved, to not play the game at all. I severely limit the number of comments that I make on other people's threads. I don't post all that often on social media. And I govern the comments that come. If there is something inappropriate, if the conversation goes in the wrong way, I'm quick to step in. It's just not worth it to me. I am interested in furthering the cause of knowledge in my own life especially, but also in the life of the people that I come in contact with. If I can help raise the bar, then I'm more than willing to do that. I'm eager to do that. If I'm not going to raise the bar, if I can't contribute significantly to the quest for knowledge going on on somebody else's thread, then I won't contribute. It's just not worth it to get involved in that kind of thing. I have better things to do with my day. That's my general approach. On that topic, I would like to offer you a a couple of suggestions, Bible-based suggestions with regard to how we can maximize our time with regard to these discussions, with regard to these arguments that happen online. Because if you say something important, and I'm certainly all in favor of saying important things, and if you want to say them on social media, you just reach that many more people that much faster. Nothing wrong with that. But if we're going to do this, if we are going to engage in conversation in this forum, which is remarkably ill-suited for conversations. Let's get that out of the way, first of all. It's just not convenient to have an actual discussion online. Strangers get involved. People get entrenched. We don't understand body language or nuance or whatever. It's just, it's just awkward all the way around. We can do better than that. But if we are doing it, if we are engaging in these conversations, let's do it with a bit of wisdom, and we'll take the wisdom from the Bible. First of all, with regard to your own conversations, with regard to the conversations that you start, understand that you are being watched. After all, that is the whole point. You want to be seen, but you're not going to just be seen by the people that you are targeting. If you have a particular political point of view, for instance, I'm sure that you have friends who do not share that, who in fact may be diametrically opposed to you in those situations. If your joke is not going to be considered funny by people who disagree with you, you should expect a negative pushback from that. That doesn't necessarily mean you don't make the joke, but realize what you're getting yourself into. Realize the impact that's going to have on your friends and neighbors. And if ultimately our goal is to win souls to Christ, surely alienating them deliberately over a matter regarding silly things, irrelevant things, carnal things... That's not a good expenditure of our influence. And more than anything else, of course, realize that God is watching us. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, the text says in Proverbs 15, verse 3. Realize that the way we come across is not just a demonstration of our own political position or our own preferences. We are shining the light of Jesus Christ wherever we go, and God is aware of that, and our neighbors are aware of that, as well as our brethren, whoever happens to run across us. We are shining a light. We are showing ourselves to be a certain kind of person. And we want at all times, perhaps even more so when that many more people are seeing us at a given time, we want to be seen as God's kind of person first and foremost. So govern your tongue, even though it's maybe our fingers that we're governing technically speaking, but the same point applies. Govern the words that you use. Season your speech with salt. 
the text says in Colossians 4, verse 6. And that is very complicated when we don't exactly know who we're talking to. When we are spewing our words to the four winds, it's very difficult for us to understand how we are best to speak. And oftentimes, perhaps the best approach is for us to simply not speak at all. But if we do speak, let's speak in God's way. Let's speak in a way that we can be a positive influence on others and as little as possible be a negative influence. With regard to other people's conversations, if somebody else starts something and you want to get involved, again, we're not suggesting that you don't get involved. You post wherever you want to post. But if you want to get involved in somebody else's conversation, there is a lot going on that you don't understand about. We need to be judicious in the way that we get involved in such things. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse number 2, the text says here, do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on the earth, so let your words be few. Maybe Solomon means here speaking to God directly. Maybe that's his point. Or maybe it's simply his point that you shouldn't speak very much at all because God is always watching you. When you do speak, as James chapter 3 illustrates, make sure that you are governing your tongue as you ought to. And remember that you're never going to completely tame it. So maybe choosing carefully where we get involved is the best route of action to begin with. And no matter what kind of conversation you're engaged in, whether it's your initiation, whether it's someone else's, realize that there are fools and then there are fools. King James, bless his heart, I think got it exactly right when he translated the text in Proverbs 26 and verse 4 and 5 as answer a fool according to his folly, do not answer a fool according to his folly. That seemingly contradictory passage there. Most modern versions try to nuance that so you can see the difference between when you're supposed to speak and when you're not supposed to speak, which to my mind is A, accurate, of course. I think that's exactly what he's trying to say. But B, it misses the point. Clearly, Solomon is writing this proverb down as a deliberate paradox. He's intending for it to look contradictory. That's the whole point of this. And it requires some wisdom to know the difference between one fool and another. Clearly, there are situations where the best thing that you can do for this person who is caught in his error is to engage yourself and speak to him in a kind but direct fashion and try to talk him out of this destructive behavior that he may be involved in. And there are other situations where that is exactly the opposite of what you want to do. You want to steer clear of this conversation as much as you possibly can. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. There's no point in going down this rabbit hole when it cannot accomplish anything good. Know when to say no to a pointless conversation. Social media has a lot of positive things going for it, no doubt about that. But let's focus on the positive things and not dive head first into the negative things. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing Prague Kaput Regni is the name of a board game that we have in our house. It is also the town motto of the city of Prague, which is now the capital of the Czech Republic. It is Latin for Prague, the capital of the kingdom, which doesn't strike me as an especially inspiring town motto, but whatever, they didn't ask me. In Prague Kaput Regni, you're rebuilding the city. You build walls, you build buildings. You can go down the road to the Vitaba River and build the Charles Bridge or rebuild the Charles Bridge. And you have to have eggs to build the bridge. That was kind of interesting. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with that bit of knowledge. But apparently eggs were a very important ingredient in putting the bridge across the river. Okay, that's, that's fine, I suppose. But we're not talking about learning civil engineering or Eastern European history here. 
the way we learn games typically in the Hammond's house is this. We get the game, we do a lot of research ahead of time, and I have a general knowledge of how the game works. And Tracy, my wife, and the one who teaches games, she holds up in a corner with the rules and she studies the rules. And then she takes us through the game. That's the way that typically it works. Now, I had been looking forward to playing this game for months. Uh, This game became unavailable in large measure because of COVID-19 and Chinese factories and closed down game shops and blah, blah, blah. It was 2020. What are you going to do? As a result, instead of getting this around my birthday, I got it at Christmas. And after the new year, we came back and we're going to play the game. And for whatever reason, we weren't able to get it to the table. And this drags on and on and on. And finally, my wife, bless her heart, starts feeling guilty about this. And we really need to play this game. This is how Gamey's been looking forward to this. And she wasn't in the mood. She wasn't physically up to it, really. She was suffering from a migraine that day. And it was just going very poorly on her end. It wasn't her fault. It was just going poorly. And I knew enough about the game to insert a question here or there, which was really distracting from the process. And it got to be just a situation where I was not sure at all how this game was going to work. And it's a relatively complicated game. And it's by no means the most complicated game that we own. But for the first time in a very long time, I'm sitting over a game. I am taking the pieces out of the box. And I am not sure that we are going to be able to play this game. In fact, I don't know how we can possibly complete the first playing of the game. I'm already selling this game on eBay in my mind. I'm wondering what I can get for it in trade. This is a game that I've been looking forward to for a long, long time. And I don't think we're going to be able to learn it. But we stick to it. And we play some. And we play some more. And we get through the first round. And we get through the second round. And it's starting to come together. And we don't play it entirely right. We get a couple of rules wrong here and there. But we get an essence of how the game works. And by the end of it, not only am I emboldened to play the game, I am encouraged thinking that maybe the game is even better than I thought it was going to be. And turns out it has turned into one of our new favorites. I really, really enjoy this game, and I'm looking forward to playing it more. That knowledge was difficult to come by, and at some point it became clear in my mind that I was not going to get the knowledge. But we stuck with it. We continued. We persevered, and now we have a new favorite game. Knowledge in general is like that, and certainly spiritual knowledge is like that. We get to the point in our walk with Christ when we feel like we are not going to be able to do this. God is asking too much of us, and we're just scratching our heads the entire time. I just don't understand this. I don't think I'm ever going to understand this. I feel like quitting. I think that I'm going to have to give this up. In those moments, I want to give you assurance that God is on your side here, that the whole point is that you understand his will. The Bible is not written to you in code. You can understand this. You've got this. You can do this. You may need a little bit of help, but thankfully you have help. And what we need to do in these moments is avail ourselves of that help. I love the text in Titus chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, where the older men are supposed to teach the younger men, the older women are supposed to teach the younger women about practical ways to live your life, about practical ways to serve God, about maybe specific ways that men work or that women work, how older people work, how younger people work, building a relationship, a series of relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a ready resource of wisdom, of knowledge, of experience that you can tap into at any time. Go to your average senior citizen and ask them about their life. Ask them how they succeeded, where they failed, why they failed. I assure you, they are willing and eager to communicate that 
to others. We want to pass that knowledge down because we want things to be easier on the next generation than they were for us. I would like to think that's true in a general sense, but that's certainly true with regard to the people of God. Realize also that there are ample allies that are fighting alongside of you. This is not a passive process. You're not in this alone. There are people who are working with you in this effort. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and following talks about how two are better than one. They have a better reward for their labor. The threefold strand is not easily broken. That fellowship that we have, which is true in a general sense, it's good to have friends, it's good to have support, it's good to be married, things of that nature. But especially with regard to spiritual things, if you realize that you're not in this alone, if you have brothers and sisters in Christ at the ready, if you're in position to avail yourself, and we all are, of the fellow soldiers we have in this fight, then by all means do that. Use the support that is available to you, that was made available to you by God through the church, through the body of Christ. God is going to empower you to succeed in these areas. Don't lose sight of that basic concept. I love the passage in Philippians 1 and verse 4. Finding a favorite passage in Philippians is tough, but it's tough to beat verse 4. He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ. This gospel that had taken root and was considerable fruit in the city of Philippi, in the church that was there, God was not done with them. He was going to continue to allow them to mature and to grow. The more they live, the more they work, the more the Spirit is able to affect their lives and hone their behavior and hone their thought process so they can be more and more like their Savior, Jesus Christ, like our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what being a living sacrifice is all about, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. God is not done with that yet. He is still working on us. And as we continue to participate in the gospel, we continue to have him work on us, and we get better and better at what we're trying to be. Now, we need to understand James chapter 1, especially verse number 5 through 7, emphasizes that if we want this wisdom, we need to ask for it. But the flip side is also true. If we ask for it, we will receive it. And what a tremendous blessing that is to know that the difficulties that we encounter on an ongoing basis, how to practically live our lives as Christians in a sinful world. God is there with us. God is helping us. God is giving us aid if we are open to it. Don't give up your quest for learning just because it seems like it's difficult or it seems like you have gotten far enough or what you have is better than somebody else. Don't Quit on yourself. Allow God to continue his work in you so that you can be what God wants you to be, a better and better reflection of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.